Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Come one, come all. Welcome to episode 104 of Americans Watching the Footy, episode 32 of season two, if you're keeping track that way. I'm not really. I'm Benjamin Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California, and my brother Ethan is not next to me. Where the hell are you? Philadelphia. Oh, when did that happen? Today? Well, yesterday at this point, I guess, because it's really early Monday where you are. Yes, but I am in the Eastern time zone for this round. You know, a lot of the times when I've recorded from other places, it's been like a suburb of a well-known city. No, I'm actually in Philadelphia city limits. So, yeah. I know a lot of times Australian audiences, you got to get a little U.S. geography lesson. Not not as much to it this time. It's just I'm in Philadelphia. Yeah, Ethan's going to be away a decent amount uh, during the summer, seeing some more ballparks. I'll still likely be here in the Bay Area working, keeping myself busy. So, uh more of these remote episodes, so let's see how much we talk over each other. Round 12. Um, interesting article from The Guardian kind of summed up round 12 nicely. Basically, like, most of the games involving the perceived better teams kind of sucked. And you, have to, you had to look outside of the traditional Victorian powers to find good football, which, fortunately, that's something we already did. Yeah, thanks to us, you know being all the way across the Pacific Ocean. It's not like we have much of a Victorian bias, if any. Also, just the round started slowly and then really picked up starting Saturday night. I was not expecting the Sunday fixtures to deliver as much as they did, particularly the last one. So I was very happy about that. I was wide awake uh, Sunday around, what was it, 2 a.m. when the last game finished. Yeah, I. it was interesting how it all kind of shook out. Like, if you told me which games would be compelling and which ones weren't, I wouldn't be that surprised other than that Essendon against North Melbourne was so good. Uh, I would say a bit surprising that Melbourne and Carlton was as boring as it was, and that was your Friday night game. But before that, we do have a little bit of news to go over. Yeah, so just another development in the Hawthorne saga. So the families have gone public as they take the case to the Human Rights Commission. I, I applaud the the courage they have in doing that. So it it's uh, three former players of their families led by Sue Rioli and his wife Shannon, along with one former club staffer. So it's just another step in this process. The league hasn't entirely ruled out discipline to the club, but it seems like the main personnel who were targeted in previous investigations, Alistair Clarkson, Chris Fagan, and Jason Burt, I think they're going to be off the hook, but I'm I'm still a little in the dark. It seems like a lot of people are in the dark about this. There's a lot more of this case to go. Yeah, I don't know what to make of any of this. I'm hardly an expert. I think most people 
within the area are confused and we're kind of all the way over here. Um, you can't see, but I'm pointing. Point is, this investigation is going to be escalated. And so, you know, it's it's out of the league's hands now, which has its pluses and minuses. Seemingly, I'm thinking more pluses because it's not like the AFL can take the AFL off or the AFL's handling of the investigation anymore. As for the actual games, a uh, really shitty Friday night round opener. Melbourne, 8-13-61, defeated Carlton, 6-8-44. This game was just pretty dull throughout, other than Conti Pickett scoring a couple of goals, and I thought Harry Mackay basically had Carlton's season at a microcosm. He got off to a nice start individually, kicked a couple early goals off of a clean snap, and then another snap actually after he had been held by Adam Tomlinson, who I'm not sure why they brought him back in the lineup. I believe part of it was because Michael Hibbard was being managed. Tomlinson said it had a best on ground performance for the KC Demons, but he hasn't shown really top-level ability for a couple years. I remember being really critical of him against Sydney last year, and, I mean, you could tell when he's in there. That's never a good thing. And They did take advantage of that matchup a little bit, but not nearly enough as the game went on as a whole. Speaking of Kazi, by the way... uh. Happy belated birthday. I learned on Friday that Kazi and I share a birthday, June 2nd. Now, is he a couple years younger or? He's one year younger than I. Okay. He's 22. Gotcha. Well, he looked good, but even the energy that comes out of him scoring a goal that permeates the rest of the team couldn't make this game fun. Like, if your friend said, come on over and watch this game, do not come. Do not come. I'm going to come. No, seriously, don't. This was not a good use of your time. This game, like, it kind of would, like, fluctuate between, oh, this is going to be a blowout, and, oh, shit, Carlton are making this interesting, and then it ends up just being boring again. It's like, it did enough to keep you watching, but not to entertain, other than seeing Carlton struggle. Um, I liked the way everyone seemed to feel about this game, like, neutral observers where just about everyone seemed happy for Harry Mackay to, like, at least initially overcome some of his kicking problems. He ended up kicking a couple of behinds later. There were shots that he should probably be taking care of. There was one where he just, like, came up came up short on a shot that should have never been short for anybody. But he also hit a bomb from 59. I was happy to see those early goals and... It just got funnier and funnier as the game went on when the Blues were showing an inability to score otherwise. I mean, he had their first three goals of the game. And that third goal, mind you, didn't come until early in the third quarter. It was 36 to 17 at halftime. Like, if I hadn't... I didn't think the result of this was ever really in doubt. Did you, Ethan? No, there were a couple moments where you kind of sat forward in your chair a little bit. But if I hadn't pooped before this game, it would have bored the shit out of me. All right. uh, Yeah. There's there's that. Um, I had a couple big positives in this game out of so the Melbourne youngsters. I mean, I'd established pretty much everybody at this point has established that Jacob Van Royen is a player to watch. But I noticed that the Blues were really intent on forcing him into packs. And for a 10th gamer to get that treatment is a huge sign of respect. And he managed to do well in those contests despite that. Yeah, I mean, he's just a big, strong dude. And then further back, John McVie has been getting more time at fullback, and there was a bit more of a focus on him, obviously, 
with Hibbard out. He's not the biggest guy, but he's got good hands and had a couple key intercept marks. And then what he did venture forward had a really smart to get Joel Smith into space, and that set up a goal. So good signs from the Melbourne youngsters. Remember, they debuted two youngsters all of last year. So I, I guess Joel Smith offers more away from the forward 50 than Ben Brown, but I would like to see Brown in there. They're still clearly figuring out their forward mix. I imagine Ben will get another look. You could tell the D's really wanted to play on the wing far more throughout this game. And, you know, they did so just in a not very entertaining fashion. You know, some wing play can be really exciting. I think of like some of the big Max Holmes runs and stuff. This was, you know, it was very slow. You know, it was methodical and I'd rather win than be entertained. But like from a neutral perspective, I, I can't overstate. This was not fun. Um, did we ever get the score? Yeah, I did. It was the very start. Okay, good. I did enjoy just like, you know, going through social media and seeing like basically everyone with no stake in this game. Like nobody likes Carlton, but people wanted Harry Mackay to overcome like his personal struggles. So like the first two and a half quarters really fit that nicely where he was the only one who could do anything for them. And it's like, I don't see that in other sports very much where like people are cheering for a player to overcome personal obstacles like that. Like if Josh Allen had a really crappy season or I mean, people people generally like the Bills. I don't know if I guess if Josh Allen or Jalen Hurts or someone had a crappy season, people wouldn't be like, yeah, I hope they lose every game, but I hope he overcomes that. It's I don't know. Maybe it's just footy players are cool people. Maybe it's that the fans are cool people. I don't know. But I thought it was funny, and I love that the game kind of played up to that. So Makai finished 3-2 on nine marks and 12 disposals, but I believe only one goal from Charlie Curnow came in that stretch in the third quarter where the Blues cut it down to 11 and made things interesting, but Bailey Fritch got the next goal. Fritch had been inaccurate to start the night. He'd gone no goals three. Yeah, this was funny because like like that sequence, you know, Carlton would get it down to 11 and then the D's would open it back up and then Carlton would make it interesting. It was like, it was never quite a blowout. It was never quite interesting. It was never baby making footy either. It, it, the margin was never big enough for people to really turn off the TV despite the low quality of the game itself. But it, so Fritch did, it wasn't fun. No, Fritch did end up hitting his last two shots. So he ended up kicking two or three from 18 disposals and seven marks. was happy that he was able to round into form. I know he's gotten criticism for taking some more daring shots, but he's usually able to hit those. And unlike some players, he's actually able to correct things mid-game when he isn't going super well. Christian Petraka was the leading possession getter on the ground with 32 disposals, 17 contested possessions, Nine intercepts, nine score involvements, seven clearances and a goal. He really lifted in Clayton Oliver's absence. And Oliver should be back for the Kings birthday match. A very quick recovery from that hamstring injury. Ed Langdon with a behind from 25 disposals at 590 meters. Angus Brayshaw and Trent Rivers with 24 each. Brayshaw able to play more at halfback with Lucky Hunter back in. And James Harms taking a bit more wing time, though. Harms will not be playing for Kane's birthday. He had a high bump on Matt Cottrell that got him suspended for a game. I liked Langdon's game. Again, not exciting, but efficient. Effective. Yeah, he was solid. He was definitely one of the more impactful players. It's one of those games where it's like, you know, I've said at times, 
you know, these teams, neither of them deserve four points. I think Melbourne deserves at least three points because, you know, they controlled the game. They played it effectively. I would think Petrock is your three votes, but I think Langdon gets at least one vote out of this, maybe even two. I think Jack Viney's got a strong case for a couple as well. He had 20 disposals, 11 contested possessions, and seven clearances, has been getting more focus in Oliver's absence, and has still been able to play up. Out of the defenders, Christian Salem at 20 disposals, Stephen May 18 at 495 meters, Jake Lever the most active in the air, 17 disposals, 12 intercepts, 9 contested possessions, and 7 marks, and Max Gone hit one, kicked 1-2, one, had 20 hitouts, 16 disposals, and 9 contested possessions. Yes, his numbers have been lower, but kind of makes sense considering he's been able to share more rock time with Grundy. He's been playing more full forward. The, I don't know, the Ds aren't exactly hurting because his numbers are down and probably help him save some of his energy as well. Yeah, his, they could, he could still go into that, you know, 2021 finals mode where there's just like three of him on the ground. We just haven't seen that yet and it hasn't been necessary, but, you know, maybe against Collingwood it does become necessary because that's going to be a great test. I think this is going to be like, this has to be one of the most anticipated King's birthday games in a while or, or Queen's, I mean, not that there's been a King's birthday game in a while, but just like, most anticipated matchup between these two clubs in a while. I mean, last year, you know, there was some buildup, but I don't know if it could quite, if it's going it's, it's to be able to stack up to this year. I think this is going to be really fun. The Ds did have 20 more inside 50s. Uh, on Carlton's and Adam Chera, 30 disposals, gained 471 meters. Sam Doherty behind in 26 disposals. Patrick Cripps, I thought he was going to have a huge game. He did have... More than half of his possessions contested, but he still only ended up with 13 of those and 23 disposals. Yeah, you predicted that he would have 28 and also that Melbourne would win by 24. So a little off in that department, but yeah, over two on those predictions. However, I said 80 to 56, so 142% for the game, and they came out at a little below 139%. So their percentage for the game was was pretty close. Uh, Sam Walsh, only 22 disposals, ending his run of games with, what was it, 25 or more, I think? Yeah, he had had 25 or more disposals in his previous 29 games. He was also caught holding the ball a couple times, and I noted he just looked very human, like a lot of Carlton, who now sit in <laughs> 14th. His last game with fewer than 25 disposals was... 2021 round 14, a loss to GWS. I do not remember this game, but the Giants. I don't really either. I just looked at it and it was like, I have no recollection of this. I have no recollection of Jeremy Finlayson kicking five goals. Mitch McGovern, he struggled. I think he's far from Carlton's biggest problem, but I also understand why Blues fans have been so frustrated with him. He did have 20 disposals, eight marks, and 468 meters gain, but... The Fritch goal midway through the third, he just kind of like stood there and watched Fritch mark in a pack. And as an intercept defender, you can't you can't make plays like that. Like you can't have like obvious plays where it's like this guy isn't putting in effort. That that just can't happen. Uh, Jacob Wiedering, who I think is probably Carlton's best backline defender. I know they've got some guys that move the ball well, but in terms of actual defense, I think Wiedering is my favorite. He had an all right game, 16 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 8 marks. Brody Kemp, 14 disposals and 10 marks. Still not a huge fan of Kemp. Seems like he, you know, a lot of those marks were just kind of from the unpressured sequences where they're just kind of passing their own end. 
All right, we spend way too much time on that crap. Yeah, um, I know how I said I didn't remember Jeremy Finlayson kicking five goals. Yeah. There's a reason for that, because he kicked five goals in Port Adelaide's 55-point win over Hawthorne. 23-13-151 over Hawthorne, 14-12-96. The Hawks clawed back this margin a lot in the second half because Port led 105-23 to at the break. Tower chants were alive and well within the first quarter. It was 57-15 to at quarter time. I was not watching this game. I was at college baseball watching Texas A&M play Cal State Fullerton as part of the regional that Stanford's hosting. I just checked the score a couple times. I was like, okay, I don't need to go back and see any of this. Yeah, so Port was the first team to hit 100 in the first half since Richmond did it back in round 16 of 2019 playing on the Gold Coast. And 105 was the AFL's highest halftime score since the Saints put 118 on the first year Greater Western Sydney Giants. And amidst all that, one player on the field did not have a disposal in the first half. Ethan? I only know this because you told me it was Sam Frost. Of course it was. Fucking Frostball at its finest. No, Frostball would be, you know, just a, he would have a few disposals, but they'd all be really bad turning. I mean, he was he was fumbly, and that's why he wasn't able to get any disposals, so I, I could still kind of call it Frostball. Um, the X score called this game just after nine minutes had been played in the second quarter. That's the second fastest call on record after the D's and Roos game earlier this year. I mean, th- this was just, it was a massive first quarter. Finlayson kicked four of Port's nine goals in the first and had an opportunity for a couple more, too. You had said they had tried, like, the Hawks had tried four different defenders on him and he scored on every single one of them. Uh, Something like that, yeah. They noted on the commentary that Sam Frost, Josh Weddle, Jack Scrimshaw, and James Blank had all played on Finlayson with still a few minutes remaining in the first quarter. And then after that, Finlayson got that fourth goal. So Hawthorne just weren't able to solve him. And the absence of James Sicily was really telling in this game. He was suspended for that high bump on Anthony Caminiti from last week. And there was no leadership in the back without him. It was a struggle from the beginning, and you understood why right away, really. By the way, 57 was Port's highest first quarter score at the Adelaide Oval, and they had 11 of 12 four-and-a-half stoppage clearances. It, it was it was domination, and despite all that, Hawthorne were able to finish the game on a much better note. They won the second half. You could tell they were, they were intent on really closing out a game better, and that those small wins like that, are something that I really appreciate from a team that you know is going to struggle. Josh Weddle had a really shaky first quarter as Port got off to that big lead. Had a couple really key defensive miscues, but was much more sound with the ball in hand and as an interceptor in the second half. That was really good to see. I normally wouldn't care about stuff like that. A lot of times, like the fourth quarter, once the game is over, you know, the pressure goes way down and both teams just score a bunch. But they played a good third quarter as well. You know, this is a sign that the team is bought in. And sometimes that's all you can ask for. Like, I remember early in the year when they played Sydney or when they fell off against the Caps or against the Dockers, you didn't see that. So it was good that they actually came out and just, and you know, finished this game. Forget the fourth quarter where Port was kind of mailing it in. They played a good third quarter. You know, like, it was a tied third quarter, 33 apiece. Like, I think that's their best takeaway from this game. Just, I like their approach to everything. And for a team that's usually been terrible in third quarters, 
even with what preceded it, like there's something to go off there. The things that I noted about Port's game plan that worked so early, they were attacking the corridor, they were rebounding really quickly, and they were taking advantage of Hawthorne trying to play quickly as well. The Hawks ended up being too quick for their own good at times. And coming out of defense, Port just have some excellent kicks that can go from the defensive 50. Dan Houston and Ryan Byrne lead the way there. Obviously, Byrne can slide forward as well, but Houston should be in all Australian conversations with how effective his kicks are, just how often they're retained as well. Lockheed Jones was also really strong on that front. So if there's a spot for him there, it's as that sort of halfback group being able to kick out of defense really well. I wouldn't be surprised because he's kind of been in a few different spots. Assuming the power in a good spot health-wise, maybe he could kind of be the super sub for them because he can fit a bunch of different roles. I would absolutely love that. Oh, yeah. The other positive for Hawthorne, before I forget, Luke Bruce did kick his 500th career goal in this game. actually ended up with 504 after a couple early misses. So another positive there, getting reward for effort for a really strong career and being willing to stick it out while the club is in this rebuilding process as well. He's the oldest guy on the list. Would have been nice for him to get it in that game against the Saints last week in a win where he had played pretty well. I forget who it was that could have given one off to him, but it was nice for him to, you know, get his recognition. He's been, you know, among the better players for them in this last, what, like six, seven year stretch, if not longer. And, and it's just cool that he's kind of bridging a couple of different eras in club history. And hopefully he's able to be here and see like when the next, you know, as they enter this next window of success. All right, stats. Uh, you mentioned Finlayson's 5-2. That was off 17 disposals of nine marks. Todd Marshall also had five goals in his return from concussion. His second concussion of the year, mind you. He also kicked to behind. He had 16 disposals, 11 score involvements, and 10 marks. Junior Rioli with four goals straight. Uh, Connor Rosie kicked 1-2 off 29 disposals. He had eight marks and gained 859 meters. For anyone that's not, you know, taking the ball out of the goal square to gain that much ground is pretty legit. Uh, Zach Butters, 1-1, 26 disposals, 8 marks, 7 tackles. You know, could he be a guy that, as the as the year goes on, you know, enters the Brownlow race? I don't think that's out of the question. Oh, I think he's already entered it. I think right now you might be looking at him, Nick Dacos, and Marcus Bonham-Pelly as your leading candidates. Well, let's see. The Brownlow predictor on the AFL website, it's got... Dacos one, Petraka two, and then a tie for third between Dawson and Tim Taranto with Butters and Zach Merrick tied in that next spot. They got Bonham Pelly down a bit. Interesting. Uh, Ollie Wines a goal in 24 disposals. Dan Houston two goals in 20 disposals. I think of him as more of a defender, but when your team gets 23 goals, a guy like him is probably factoring in. Miles Bergman a behind 17 disposals, 495 meters. One meter for every time he's been confused with Jason Horn Francis. Willem Drew, 17 disposals and nine tackles. Port laid 18 more tackles, including 16 more inside 50, 17 to one. So I think when Hawthorne go into their match review, I think that's something they're going to have to look at. Alir Alir, 14 disposals, 10 intercepts, eight contested possessions. It was fun seeing Ben Dixon scream his name during the Golden Fist segment. And Kane Farrell out of just 14 disposals, 523 meters gained. Farrell is an exceptionally long kick as well. I don't think of him as maybe being as effective of a kick as Houston, but he's a player that can often 
do that carrying out of the goal square, do that kick in duty, especially with Tom Jonas still being left out. Remember, he was just kept out after the suspension as Ken Hinckley and Chad Corns backed in a strong performance for their defenders, and uh, it worked. Port have a record nine-game win streak. It's going to be really unsurprising when he's not captain anymore. Something you might have to worry just a little bit about, as well as things are going for this team right now, you know, how will Jonas handle being kind of taken down a few pegs? Hawthorne stats of the note, the top two rated players in terms of fantasy points were uh, ex-Port players. That's interesting. Uh, Jarman Impey with a goal from 33 disposals at 534 meters. Love seeing him venture forward and get those goals. Carl Amon, a goal from 25. 10 score involvements at 500 meters. I didn't really hear any boos for him, so that was a nice surprise. James Warple had 35 disposals against 495 meters. Blake Hardwick, 25 and 525 meters. He's been one of their bigger carriers out of defense. Josh Weddle's 25 disposals again. The more effective and impactful ones came in the second half, particularly in the third quarter. Jack Scrimshaw, also a much more visible game of defense. 19 disposals and 13 intercepts. In terms of goal kicking, Mitchell Lewis kicked 3-2 from 20 disposals, 13 score involvements and 8 marks. And Luke Bruce kicked 5-3 from 15. Again, he's now up to 504 goals in his 13-season career. West Coast Eagles, 8-9-57, defeated by Collingwood, 8-12-120. Collingwood worked out this score late. It was 6 goals to none. Actually, it was bookended by 6 goals to none runs. So, I actually was 2-for-2 on my prediction of this game from our round preview that Collingwood would score the first six goals and win by more than 57 and a half, which was the spread as we were recording on a Tuesday night in America. So Wednesday afternoon in Australia. Weird thing about this game, which I wasn't super invested in, obviously, because it was 52 to nine or whatever when I really started watching. I feel like this is about as good a game as you can have when you give up the first six goals, you, you get more than doubled up. And yet, like, I think people let this game like, hey, the Eagles have some fight in them and have a few quality players. Like, I know that's a reflection of how low the bar is right now, but I feel like it could only happen in a scenario like this. You know, it's like last place versus first place and everything that's gone on for the Eagles. Where Because I, I think the final score of Port's loss to Hawthorne last year which we mentioned in our preview, was very similar, and like the tone could not be more different. No, it's, it's about expectation, and that the Eagles were able to keep reasonable pace with Collingwood for the amount of the game they did. It was only a 26-point game at three-quarter time, which was a hell of a lot better than I expected. It was an even third quarter, 28 points apiece. And after I was really critical of a lack of pressure early on, it was the more experienced players for the Eagles, their leaders, Liam Duncan and Oscar Allen, who really started enforcing the pressure. And the rest of the team followed. Allen was the captain for this game. I like that he was backed in like that. He did have a couple goals. And he's, again, just continuing to get recognition despite being on such a struggling team. And a non-Victorian team. That too. The Eagles have basically just been a punchline for the last couple of years. And people are still appreciating his performance, which which is really cool. The thing that irritated me about this game, though, was that the Eagles got a lot of the ball early on. 
There were plus nine and inside 50s and clearances in the first half, but they could not stick any connections, whether on handballs or kicks inside 50. 21.2% disposal efficiency inside 50 in the first half to Collingwood's 58.3, and the pies were burning them on rebounds. Collingwood kicked 6-2 from 30 intercepts in the first half, while the Eagles kicked just 1-1 from 26. So, I mean, that's where this game was won and lost, was Collingwood rebounding super well, which is not a surprise for them, and the Eagles giving them plenty of opportunities to do that. Didn't help that on the Eagles' back end, Shannon Hearn copped another hamstring injury and didn't play beyond the first quarter. I'm, I'm just so fucking done with all the soft tissue injuries, and I want an external review of the strength and conditioning of the medical department of the club because it can't just be that it's the older players. There's something systemic here that's being missed. Does the team not own one of those Theraguns? Because, like, athletes seem to swear by that shit. I think you'd need an endless supply of Theraguns to solve the Eagles' problem right now. Oh, yeah, the other thing that happened in this game that's of note. I I, I don't like talking about, you know, suspension-worthy incidents all that much, but Jordan Degoe, what the fuck? Yeah, this thumped Elijah Hewitt after he got rid of the ball, sent straight to the tribunal over that, and the Eagles have to apologize or decide to apologize for reporting the fucking news. Like, I know there's been... You know, people love tabloid type stuff in Australia, but like that's news. I mean, don't you don't usually see a team post about, you know, a player being suspended for something they did to them. But I don't think it was a bad thing in terms of what the punishment actually is. I mean, because if it's said straight to the tribunal, that usually means three plus. I see this as being worthy of four games. Between similarities to the Tom Stewart bump on Dion Prestia last year, you know, pass the ball after it was disposed of, and also the league cracking down more on head contact this year in particular, then this needs to be punished adequately. This was bad. Um, it was one that, like, you might not have noticed it the moment it happened because it was off the ball, but, like, the moment you saw the replay, it was just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was pissed off about is that nobody went to Dugowie, pushed him around, harassed him, or, or any, anything for it. Until after quarter time, Greg Clark was the sub for this game. He was itching to, you know, get involved in that action. I think he was on the bench at the time. It took until after quarter time for any altercations to occur. Stand up for your guys. How hard is it? That's a culture issue. You know, I hope Dugowie continues to take care of himself off the field because he seems to be doing a much better job with that lately. But uh, yeah, he's not going to be playing for a while. So hopefully he doesn't you know, do anything dumb in the uh, downtime. Yeah, I mean, this is an important stretch coming up for the Pies. King's birthday before the bye, King's birthday before the bye, then the Crows out of it, then the Suns and then the Suns and Bulldogs, if you're looking at their next four, which, I mean, I think that's the maximum length for a potential suspension. I think it could go longer, but I I expect, I, I, I expect four. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be any longer. The Pies did, you know, what we expected them to do in this game in that they they worked out the margin to a reasonable extent. They were punishing through the middle. I'm wondering how much of that in the second half ended up being, well, in the fourth quarter ended up being because the Eagles were down two or because of the skill gap. It was because of both, and I'm just trying to figure out how much of each of those factors really contributed. 
only Elliot Yeo and Dom Sheed could only do so much. Both of them with monster games was good for Sheed to get that much of the ball and also be good with it in his 150th game. And then, holy shit, Elliot Yeo got through a game and played damn well in it. He's still a really effective halfback when he's healthy. And it makes me so sad that, that I go into every game thinking, all right, this is where Yeo gets hurt again. Yeah, it's just, I really feel for the guy. Because it's not just he gets hurt a lot. It's like, he's really skilled. That, honestly, I think makes it even more frustrating. And he's still only 29. We know what he can be. He's a two-time All-Australian, two-time club best and fairest, key premiership player. But in the past four seasons, he's played a grand total of 31 games. Tom Mitchell, a goal, 30 disposals, 15 contested possessions. How about 13 tackles for the veteran? I, I love... Tom Mitchell as addition to this midfield again he has better pieces around him that makes everything he does more impactful Taylor Adams kept me from getting wiped out from fantasy this week I probably would lose even if Hugh Greenwood had played the full game but it would have been closer uh he finished with a goal off 23 disposals and 11 score involvements Darcy Cameron behind 31 hit outs 23 disposals 15 contested possessions 11 score involvements love that he and Mason Cox are able to both play without kind of like stepping on each other's toes at all Josh Acos and Scott Pendlery each with 21 disposals Isaac Quainer did most of the intercept duty rather than Darcy Moore in this game he ended up with 18 disposals and 11 marks Brody I am so glad that I picked him up so when Tom Barris was ruled out with his hip injury I had a vacancy for the weekend, so I said, fuck it, you know, Planner's on the same bye, round 14. Uh, Yeah, he gave me 92 points. Brody Majacek, he gave me 98. Only 3-2 off 15 disposals and 11 marks. Mason, two goals in the behind, and he got one off of a sketchy call, but always happy to see him score. 21 hitouts, 14 disposals, 10 contested possessions. Pies with 29 more hitouts, 19 more tackles, and... Uh, efficiency inside 50, you know, you talked about the Eagles not capitalizing on early chances. Carried uh, through throughout. Yeah, but Collingwood at 58.9% for the game inside 50 efficiency. West Coast, 32.7. So you you look at that and you think, man, maybe this, you know, they could have been, they could have been closer in this game. I mean, the right team ended up winning. And even with all those struggles, West Coast, you could still leave with like a positive impression of them. Good loss. That sounds so weird, but yeah, okay. I mean, Good loss for Dom Sheed, who kicked 1-1 from 43 disposals, 10 clearances, 9 marks, and 485 meters gained. He got the respect he's due. I'm glad he's seeing the field more consistently now. Liam Duggan with 33 disposals, 13 marks, and 520 meters, and a one-game suspension for a dangerous tackle on Taylor Adams, which the club is challenging. The issue is he pinned the arms. I don't think this is going to be overturned. Tim Kelly, a goal from 29 disposals and 9 clearances, Alex Witherden, 28 disposals from the back. Yo with 26, 16 contested possessions and seven clearances. It was the stoppages where I really noticed him. And Andrew Gaffer behind from 22 disposals. Gaff still gets a lot of the ball, but that's that's really all he does. Unfortunately, he's got another year on his contract, and he's, he's well past it at this point. You know, we've had those what-if-they're-healthy discussions, and I don't think we ever factor Elliot Yo into that because you just except that he's always hurt, but that might be the biggest what-if out of all of them, actually. Really, the past really the past four years, it's the case. I mean, he was, you know, in there when West Coast had that four-game losing streak to end 2021 that really started their troubles, but 
five games last year, four of the first 12 this year. All right, you guys won't know this because I will have edited out from the recording, but I just got up to let Brian Harambe, the funny cat, into the room. And that's very appropriate considering it's time to talk about the cats and his namesake played an important part again as Geelong got what we both consider a surprising victory. Western Bulldogs 10-15-75 defeated by Geelong 15-7-97. The Bulldogs inaccuracy over the full field, but yes, in front of goal is where is where, you know, it obviously shows up, you know, right on the front page. But their kicking inaccuracy in general did cost him in this one. I am back. What it do, baby? Uh, I'm still far from convinced. You know how Geelong struggle out of the bye, and they've got port out of it. If you told me that they'd be 6-6 six and six going into the bye, despite all the injuries, despite losing to the Suns, despite losing to the Giants, despite losing at home to GWS, you know? Could be a lot worse. This was a game that they won out of by out-hustling the Bulldogs. They won this game with heart. You had so many sequences where a forward came into the defensive 50 to make a spoil or a defender snuck forward and, you know, like Tom Stewart taking his first goal since 2018, which gave them a 12-point lead in the first minute of the fourth quarter. That was the moment where I thought, like, okay, we're probably going to win this shit. You know, getting into half down just two despite playing really poor defense in the first quarter and leaving the goal square open and getting thrashed through the corridor. It was like, all right, all right. For everything that went wrong there, not bad. Got into half down two and felt like it, it was weird because I kept thinking throughout this back and forth first half, which was really entertaining, even though there was just not a lot of defense being played. I was alternating between, man, we should be up by like 10 right now because both Tyson Stengel and Tom Hawkins missed shots they usually take care of. And thinking, like, how the hell are we in this game? Because whenever the dogs just took through the midfield, like, there was no way to stop them. And then after getting the first goal of the third, um, it was actually Grian finally getting a goal instead of passing one up. And Grian had three goal assists in this one, including one where he just completely passed it up to Jeremy Cameron because, I mean, you trust Jezza in those situations. Yeah, he should have had a fourth or maybe a fifth. That's the best part of this. Um, anyway... They get down 70 to 59, and it's like, ah, crap, here we go. This is, you know, talent's going to ultimately make the difference here. Ah, shit. Here we go again. I thought James O'Donnell getting his first career goal was going to be a real game changer. And then Jamari Hagen scoring because he was opening the goal square up. Sam DeConing with the mask on, not good. I don't know how much of it's that he's struggling to see, how much of it is he's afraid of breaking more bones in his face, but hopefully out of the bye, he's not playing with that thing on because it's clearly hindering him. And as bad as defense had been to that point, they'd given up 10 goals to 10 different goal kickers with 13 minutes left in the third quarter. They didn't give up another. Uh, a lot of that has to do with Tom Stewart. Tom Atkins played a really good game, hustled his ass off. And then the Bulldogs just started missing shots badly. Tanner Breen kicked a goal to give the Cats the lead, and they went into the fourth up by six after a really, really bad Lockie McNeil miss after a Tom Stewart 50 for high contact. McNeil had come in for Ed Richards, who pulled a hamstring, which was a really big moment, I thought. Yeah, and I believe that occurred around the time that Myers had a big play in the middle of the ground. Yes, that was the one that gave them the lead, actually. Oh, yeah, that was the that was the play to Bruin. 
Yeah, it was a counterattack that Tom Stewart started. Tom Stewart played a great game, and I think he's the one that ends up with three votes off of this game, though I wouldn't give it to him. I'd give it to Mark Blitzobs, who alternated between shutting down Bonham Pelly and then later in the game because John Sagler couldn't do anything against him, taking on Tim English, who you know, I think Tim English is getting the credit he deserves this year, which is awesome because he's really good. And then they finally made the sub, sap Segler for Sam Simpson, who didn't do a ton, but like, it, it's not Segler. I think John Segler's job in this game was basically, we need you in there so that Blitzovs can take Bonham Pally, but like, can Toby Conway do that much worse right now? The one thing I will give Segler is he can bark, but he's so awkward with the ball. You can tell he has no confidence in his skills, which is deserved. He doesn't have a lot of skills. And despite all that, Still won this game. Uh, Mitch Nevitt breakout performance, a goal off 17 disposals and seven tackles. Well, I was going to say, I watched so much of the Cats between you being a member and, you know, tuning me into a lot of the things that maybe some other fans might not notice about him. Nevitt is a damn fast player for how tall he is and is just really fundamentally sound. Was visible over the hole of the ground. Love the pressure that he brings. And for him to get that goal at the end of the first half, his second career goal, cemented that, yeah, the pendulum was starting to swing a bit in Geelong's favor. The Dogs had that run of a couple goals after Myers, but I didn't feel like they were going to be able to stay in front for long at the end. I'm never counting on this team to be healthy this season, but I don't know how you could find a way to take Nevin out of the lineup when guys are healthy. Like, maybe... If you actually somehow for a brief, beautiful moment have your best 22, you make him the sub. But that would even be a tough decision to make. Oshin Mullen with, you know, coming out of the bye might not have a spot. Maybe he gets into that sub role because you're going to be getting Max Holmes, Patrick Dangerfield. Who else am I forgetting? Uh, Jack Bowes all back into the lineup. You know, the thing is, the biggest need for Mullen right now is more game time just in Australian rules football. And so I would be fine with him, you know, spending the rest of the year down in the reserves if the side's healthy enough. Consider what it did for even for some players that had been playing footy for their whole lives. Look at what it did for Jamari Eugle Hagen, for example, once the dogs decide to keep him down there for the end of 2021 and how much better he was for it going into last season. Aha, Mitch Duncan. That's the other one who should be back. They finally won a game without Mitch Duncan. Holy shit. Oh my gosh, I, I didn't even think about that. They had enough defensive support in the midfield as guys were rotating, as you know, forwards were helping feed back that they were able to cover for Duncan's absence. And look, the midfield was still not what I would call good, but you had the forwards and defenders pitching in elsewhere on the ground like you needed to to win this game. And I don't know if that would be a sustainable style of play, but it was enough to win him this game, and now you get a week to rest up before you got to go at it again, which is which is pretty huge. Um, Mullen, though, it's just the physical skill is unreal. There are just things that he doesn't have the experience with, like understand, like the awareness of how little time you have to get rid of the ball sometimes because someone's right on you, just because he has so little experience here. But man, he's going to be special. Um, I noticed they didn't give him like the Gatorade bath after the game. Apparently the club stopped doing that a few years ago, just like out of courtesy to the cleanup crew. Like if it's a, like a cement floor in the change room, 
you know, then you could just hose it out. But if it's carpet, I, I, I get it. He deserved like a full Gatorade bath, though. Also, Brad Close getting involved in the midfield and creating havoc with his speed. What a shock. Told you that would happen. He has that role. He has the ball in hand. Good things happen. It's almost like we saw it all of last year. That's another thing that we can see more of as this team gets healthier. He sent up the first goal by getting a holding the ball on Ryan Tika Masala Gardner in the forward 50. He set up a couple others, did a bunch with handballs. He had a smother on a Bailey Dale kick that led to a Mark Blitzov's goal. That, that was a fun sequence. Um, you had Jake Kolajashny sneaking up around. I thought this was his best game of the year. He only had like maybe one shaky kick all night. Jed Buse was quiet early and then got involved. I thought Zach Tui played with a shit ton of heart, but Kolaj actually looked good in this game. He had that sequence. Nevin ended up with the ball in the pocket and kicked into the goal square for Mark Blitzobs, who tipped and secured it with Liam Jones on him. Uh, the last two weeks, teams have learned how to make sure Liam Jones doesn't dominate. And at the other end, the um, the dogs still don't know how to do the same against Tom Hawkins. Like, they just kick two of again and again. The Cats have now won, I think it's 21 of 24 head-to-head meetings. And uh, Gary Rowe, you know, heading into finals last year, I didn't think he belonged in the team. But you see his impact, you know, quality over quantity of touches for him. His speed, his ability to accelerate so quickly. It was cool when one time he crashed a pack and the ball spilled out to Tom Hawkins behind. He had a goal on the run. He just, he's just been phenomenal. And I'm appreciating him more and more, which usually that doesn't happen with a 31-year-old. If you're just looking at the numbers, Tom Stewart probably gets the three votes. Goal, 27 disposals, 10 intercepts, 10 marks, 697 meters. But I still give it to Mark Blitzobs because of how he neutralized two different superstars in different stages. He had a goal on a behind off 17 disposals, 16 hitouts, 12 contested possessions, and seven tackles. There were a lot of different goal scorers in this game. I don't think anyone kicked more than two goals. I think the Cats had like 12 different goal scorers. And I mean, the Bulldogs, their first 10 goals were, were scored by 10 different players. Those ended up being their only 10 goals. They didn't score again after that. From the time there were 13 minutes left in the third quarter, they kicked five behinds. Jeremy Cameron was a multi-goal scorer. He had two and a and off 21 disposals. I remember the one behind you know, hitting the post and right away a goal at the other end. It was just frustrating. Well, it was a top shot. It wasn't like he missed anything that he, you know, you really faulted for. Yeah, I believe it was 12 different goal scorers for the Cats. Rowan Hawkins and Cameron, the two goal scorers. Brian, like we said, three assists, eight marks, 20 disposals in the goal. I love how much people are realizing how well he's playing, like all across the competition. A couple of years ago, it was like only Cats fans appreciated him. And then you know, he was hurt for a lot of 21 and 22, started the year injured. Played kind of well towards the end of the year, but wasn't getting a ton of attention because there were just so many other big performers. His good friend Tom Atkins needed to lift in this game. He did nine tackles, 10 of his 19 disposals off contested possessions and a goal. And Tanner Broon ended up being the lead tackler in this game with 12 of them. He had a goal and 15 disposals. Um, sometimes I think the one percenter stat is bullshit because it says the dogs had 18 more of them. That sure doesn't match what I saw. Also, apparently the dogs won contested marks 13 to 5, but they had 72 more uncontested possessions makes sense, especially with how the first quarter went. But yeah, the one percenter stat, I highly doubt that one. I don't know how they're measuring that because they got out hustled. Of the players I had the most fun watching at this game for the Bulldogs, I would say it was Caleb Daniel, 
Adam Trelore, and Jack McRae. Daniel, the leading possession getter with a goal from 35 disposals in 546 meters. He is at home at half forward, and him being such a capable kick with both feet makes him even more useful in that role. Trelore had a goal from 31 disposals and 11 tackles. I was concerned that he was going to be out injured really early in this one. You saw him going down the race and throwing his mouth guard in frustration. Maybe it was just just a stinger or a cramp that that they thought was worse. I'm not sure. Never got it seen because helped my team not get blown out, even though my seven-game win streak did come to an end. And then Jack McRae, a goal from 29, the the workhorse that he normally is. He's not a player that I really watched the first my first couple years and understand why he's gotten all these accolades, but I get it now. Bailey Dale had 31 disposals from eight marks and 612 meters. I insist that he is a forgotten All-Australian. He got that honor in 2020. Tom Libertore with 30 disposals and seven clearances. Tim English behind from 30, hit out 27 disposals, 12 marks and eight tackles. What can he not do? Well, I mean, I guess he can't, couldn't kick a goal in this game, but his versatility is so appreciated now by everyone across the league, and that's great to see that you know, he's getting that recognition at last. I'm just correct that Tim English versus John Seglow was going to be like the meme hydrogen bomb versus coughing baby. Uh, coughing baby's team won. Bailey Smith, a goal from 24. Marcus Bonapelli had two behinds, 23 disposals, eight tackles, and 513 meters gained. Just looking at you know who had these misses, Guys like English, Bonapelli, Oscar Baker is still at 22 disposals. The dog's accuracy did let them down in this one. I saw, you know, a couple expected score metrics where it was a draw or where the dogs snuck ahead. The game was there for him and they didn't seize it. The Cats did. Cody Wakeman didn't do a ton in this game. That's the sort of game that the dogs need to win if they want to actually be a top four side. They will get a crack down at Geelong final round of the season. Things should be very different by then. The road to a top four spot for the Cats is still incredibly difficult. They have a ridiculous remaining schedule. On the right day, they have what it takes to take on all these teams. I'm not saying they're going to go into the GABA and win. I'm not saying they're going to be poured on the road. But they showed that there is an avenue to winning these games. If, if you want to get to the promised land, you know, everything's going to run through Collingwood between the rematch with them later this season and likely finals. But the path is there. They showed that in this game. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back. You know the drill by now, unless this is your first time listening. So if it is your first time listening, this is for you. And uh, welcome. Hopefully this isn't your last time listening. I, I would love if we could open up like a call line and we get people, you know, hey, long time caller, first time listener. Long time caller, first time listener. Yes. Long time caller, first time listener. All right, Mr. Fine Bam. But yeah, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy, also on YouTube there. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe's on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. Yeah, he's currently just sitting on the bed and I just curled up and is going to sleep. Good boy. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Yeah, I'm kind of in charge of Brian while Ethan is away. And I think he enjoys his time with his uncle. I still feel like a deadbeat dad for leaving. That gets me every time. It's funny, but it's true. Um, 
by the way, I couldn't think of a better time to mention this, so I'm going to mention it now. I did watch a decent amount of the first State of Origin match of the year, and I've decided that, like, if we're just looking at how fun each sport is, like, it goes Australian football, American football, rugby union, rugby league. I guess I'd have to... Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with you on that front. I got a lot of enjoyment out of watching rugby union in college. I was fortunate enough to go to a university with one of the strongest rugby union teams in the U.S., that being Cal, UC Berkeley, who uh, made the national championship game this year, lost to Navy. Not the Navy! One of my favorite sport events to go to when I was in college was Cal's 2022 homecoming rugby game against uh, BYU, Brigham Young University. Absolutely packed. You know, it was the first homecoming in three years, obviously, because of COVID, and they won it on a last-minute try. But Union appears to me to be a more technical game than league even though league probably requires more endurance because it seems like the balls in play for longer i'm really convinced like i was already convinced but the more i watched the more i'm convinced if we introduced some of the like young american audiences that play rugby to afl and to australian rules football sorry i don't want to upset the uh you know afl is not a sport people i mean it, that's also just correct yeah it's it's the name of the league but if we introduced these kids to Australian football, I think they'd love it because there are a lot of kids that play rugby, especially at, look at the local communities in the Bay Area. It's mostly out of the Polynesian community and the Irish community. And there are kids that play Gaelic football. And oh, yeah, I mean, um, I've got a number of friends, uh, a number of my female friends, actually, from high school uh, who belong to a certain one of the parishes near me. Uh, they were part of their parishes. uh Gaelic football team that played out on Treasure Island. I need to go out there sometime and watch that. But yeah, I mean, this is why I really wanted to, you know, get involved more with the USAFL, do more outreach on that front to get more people playing this amazing sport. I mean, anyone who watches it is fascinated and it's easy to see why. What I do like about State of Origin is that it's almost always a close game and that it's a way to make like, how can we have an all-star game sort of deal that people care about because the problem with a lot of all-star games is doesn't matter who wins like of the american all-star games the only one i really will watch is baseball and that doesn't matter thankfully it doesn't actually but at least you know it's played like a real game it's not like you know the nba where they play even less defense than they do in a regular season game or the nhl where just you know it's you know it's a three-on-three competition and then you know, the Pro Bowl did the right thing and just stopped. Minor minor tangent here, but if the NFL wants to do, like, an all-star thing, you know, name the teams and then have the players do, like, some kind of, like, goofy skills competition, like, which 300-pound lineman is, you know, can, can punt the farthest. <laughs> I love that. But the thing you also have to factor in with Origin, you know, there's so much state pride in Australia, and, you know, there's hunger for it to return at the top level in the footy as well. It was right before we got introduced to the game that they had a state of origin match that they organized for bushfire relief. But, you know, there was good atmosphere around that. I would love to see, you know, if you move the bye week in the finals to before the grand final, maybe you could have like non-finalists play in some sort of like Victoria versus allies state of origin game or have a bye week during the season to, you know, focus on state or local competition like that. But that's clearly origin in rugby league even though it only is two states captivates the entire nation and that's something on which australian football 
hasn't really grasped it as of late. I would love to see some sort of American state-based competition because that just doesn't exist. I mean, college sports, you know, people don't stay just within their states. I mean, there's definitely some state pride in like Ohio State versus Michigan or Texas versus Oklahoma, but there's no unifying thing like that. It's like, I think the closest you could get is like the Little League World Series. So I would love to have more things where it's like my state's better than yours. I, I like the concept of that. Let's get back to the footy that happened this weekend. We already talked about one game that happened Saturday night or early Saturday morning for us. How about the contest in Darwin, the second and final game up there this year? The Gold Coast Suns, uh, they turned things around big time, starting in the late second quarter, kicking nine goals in a row to reverse a 35-point deficit. It ended up winning a game by... 25, the Suns 16 16, 112, defeating the Crows 13 9 87. They complete the Darwin double for the second year in a row. We're going to do a fun little thing with this game. Oh, yeah? So I have not watched this game. I am going to watch it between now and the time we give our Suns progress report in one of the next couple episodes. But my knowledge of this game, other than that the Suns were down big and then they won. Like, what else do I know about this game? Uh, I know Jack... You know that Tom Duday uh, ruptured his ACL, because I told you about that. I know that, and I know that Jack Lukosius had another big goal-scoring performance, and, like, that's literally it. So, like, so you're just going to probably be reacting to a lot of what I'm saying. So I just want you to, like, tell me, you know, instead of just talking to, like, our audience, I want you to just, like, directly tell me what do I need to know about this game? Like I said, I know that the Suns were down big and they won, but I don't know like anything about how that all went down. I don't know anything about like pretty much anything else. Okay, well, this game swung a lot on pressure. In terms of, you know, team changes during the game, it swung on pressure. The Crows forward pressure was really strong early on, and that created a number of their early chances and goals. The Suns didn't match it until the second quarter. You have the only really the only thing that I take it as a real big positive from the Suns early on was that Ben Long was doing a good job against Isaac Riken. Riken had zero touches in the first quarter against his former side, but you saw the Suns starting to up their pressure and get more contested possessions in the late first quarter. But they didn't have much rhythm when they had the ball in hand, weren't able to do anything with the possessions. They had worked really hard to earn. And then the switch flipped in the latter part of the second quarter. Goals from Noah Anderson and Bailey Humphrey brought the game back to 17 points at halftime. And then something clicked in Matt Rowell's mind during the break because he took the fuck off after that. He may have only had 15 disposals, but he had 13 contested possessions, 10 clearances, and a goal. And Ben Keyes had to move off of Noah Anderson and onto Rao. And I say Rao beat Keyes, too. You know, I've said through the last few weeks, ever since Tuke Miller got hurt, that, like, Matt Rowell has just gone out the week in and week out and just been like, fuck it, I'm just going to do everything. And that he's actually been able to do that. Is so cool. And this is the lowest number of disposals that he's had in the game since the loss to St. Kilda round four. And I'm still talking about his performance like this. 
He had three of the first five clearances of the second half. And after being caught high by Jordan Dawson, he's the one that gave the Suns the lead. I thought they could win this game. I thought it would be because their forwards would be superior to the Crows' defense. But, like, I thought the midfield without Took, you know, it's you're at a disadvantage because you're going up against, you know, it's not just Laird, Dawson, Keys. It's Soligo, Smith, Millera. Smith was an important inclusion more at halfback for this game after being concussed last week. Um, yeah, the Crows defense was really thrown for a loop by Tom Duday getting hurt. He ruptured his right ACL in a marking contest with Levi Casbold on the wing. He had ruptured his left ACL four years ago. So uh, another really unfortunate break for him. Wouldn't it be an unfortunate tear or rupture? Please, I, I didn't want any puns there. But by the way, shitty puns are the extent of injury jokes that I will make. I, I, I will not do more than that. But a shitty pun here and there is irresistible. All right, fair enough. But yeah, Hinge had to play more one-on-one, and Jack Lacocious really took advantage of him. Lacocious with another five-goal performance, so 10 goals in Darwin. Give this man the keys to the Northern Territory, not just Darwin, like the entire territory. I mean, I bet the the kids of the Tiwi Islands were having a lot of fun seeing his performance again. They had a day trip to the Tiwi Islands during the weekend. Ben Long and Bailey Humphrey were the big celebrities for that. Great article by Michael Whiting, who's the really the lead Queensland team reporter on the AFL website. Take a look at that one if you haven't already. I have not, but it's, you know, Ben Long being, you know, a member of a family that's pretty legendary up there, that makes sense. But I love the idea of Bailey Humphrey team so popular up there. All, all these kids are like copying his uh, James Harden style cooking celebration from the game sealer against the dogs. He also signed a four year extension this week. So. Awesome stuff. As long as Humphrey doesn't pretend, you know, to take credit for the celebration and not pay tribute to Lil B, because that's how James Harden became a victim of the base gods curse. No, Bailey Humphrey will not become a curse. You know who else won't become a someone who would totally listen to Lil B. You know who else won't become a curse victim? Well, Matt Rowell, obviously, Jack Lacocious, Joel Jeffrey is also looking more and more at home at halfback i'd questioned his move there but it really worked this week and i noticed a lot of positive efforts from him so if you've got lacocious as more of this attacking player where he spent a lot of time in different parts of the ground you know it opens up that halfback spot for jeff reed he's taking advantage of that yeah that's not what i would have expected like you know after watching him i mean he had five goals at ballarat last year jeffrey did yeah it's like you know as as i've said like this team has more than enough forward talent that you know you're gonna have to find someone to put defensively sometimes and he is not the one i would have thought of but i guess he kind of has the body type to be an intercept defender still not what i would have anticipated but great for him to find a way into the lineup because i really like the kid and great for him to do it at home as well you got three northern territory players in this game for the suns between long jeffrey and mal roses when the Crows got back into this game, kind of going back into the flow of things to kind of keep describing this to you, Ethan, they had dominated forward time for a decent amount of the late third quarter. They'd been looking for Riley Philthorpe a lot with their kicks. And when he wasn't the one to score, they did end up getting a couple goals off packs where they ended up targeting him. Don't see Fogarty got his hundredth goal early in this game in 
the first quarter. At that point, he kicked 100 goals 40 for his career, which is remarkable accuracy. And he remained an important factor in this one. But after Lockie Murphy gave the Crows the lead in, in the early part of the fourth quarter, the Suns enforced their dominance through more clearance success. They had the first six of the fourth quarter, and they only allowed one more goal themselves the rest of the way. It was a five-goal to two final term. And, you know, the players that you'd expect ended up getting involved. Humphrey continuing his strong form. Ben King had the last goal. I think probably the most surprising contributor in this game for the Suns was along with just the shutdown job he had on Riken. First time that Riken was goalless this season. In a game where he was like such an obvious candidate to be the main character. And if you made me guess which Sun, you know, shut him down, I probably would have guessed like at least 10 guys before Ben Lawn. Charlie Ballard and Sam Collins are kind of the obvious candidates, even though you'd expect them to, even though maybe you'd expect them to get more of the time on Walker and Fogarty, but you would get enough attention Rory back. Atkins. Rory Atkins is more of a carrier out of the back third to me than yeah, a really a true defender. Yeah, but, you know, that means he's mobile and you need mobility to keep off a cracker. Phenomenal stuff from Long. I, w- I was so happy about that. I love watching Rankin, but to see the Northern Territory natives lift at home is something really special. Honestly, not a lot of huge individual numbers stand out of this game. I mentioned Matt Rouse stats already. Noah Anderson kicked 2-1 from 28 disposals, 18 contested possessions in 642 meters, and Jack Lacocious 5-1 from 16 and 10 contested possessions. But aside from that, the workload was spread out pretty well. Jared Witz did have a dominant game in the ruck because hitouts were 56-30, and they were less turnover-prone. Crows had 12 more that on that front, so the players who had been at their best form as of late continued that, and the other players kept up, plus, you know, extraordinary stuff from Long that doesn't find the stat sheet. Jordan Dawson led the Crows with 30 disposals and 633 meters gained. Brody Smith, 26 disposals and 815 meters. Ben Keyes, two goals, two behinds, 25 disposals and an octopus. Rory Laird, I shouldn't have captained him this week, which kind of surprised me. He still had 22 disposals and 14 contested possessions, but... Who was your highest score? Uh, let me check. I think it was Trelore off the top of my head. I would imagine so. Uh, I lost by 105, by the way. Let's see. Yeah, it was Trelore followed by Jarman Impey, and then Stephen Canelio in third. Those were my three over 100 this week. Uh, Charlie Ballard only gave me 47. Oh, and Wayne Miller had a goal in 20 disposals. The Suns are perfectly balanced. This is like perfectly balanced as all things should be stuff. They are 6-6, six and six, and they are at exactly 100%. 991 points for, 991 points against. The funny thing is, despite that, they're at 11th on the ladder rather than 9th or 10th. The three other teams with six wins all have a superior percentage. One of those teams is 6-5. and five. The others are all 6-6. Six and six the six and five team being Frio. But, you know, when you have a major outlier at the bottom, that kind of shifts what the middle of the pack looks like. All right, on to Sunday, where I'm not surprised the first game was so good. Uh, the second one caught me off guard. Both games decided by six points, really close to getting a draw. I was really excited about that. And of the three potential outcomes for this game, unfortunately, it was the one I least wanted, but congrats to Richmond on finally winning a close game, and congrats to Andrew McWalter on his first win as head coach, and congrats to a bunch of people in Denver who 
watched this game at a bar because Damian Hardwick was there. And apparently he paid for a shitload of lemon drops. Unfortunately, I didn't run into him into the Denver airport. That would have been awesome. I assume he's still in town there, but I mean, that would have been the coolest shit ever. Would you have recognized him just amidst a crowd? Yes. Good. Anyway, GWS 15-14-104 defeated by Richmond 16-14-110. Marlon Pickett scores the winner with 30 seconds left. Tigers led for a bunch of this game and then it felt like this was a game that they were just bound to lose with some of the shots they missed and mistakes they made and yet they managed to overcome that despite and also the Giants were dominant in terms of possession in the fourth quarter I noted that with about four minutes left they were plus 16 on inside 50s in the fourth quarter and they ended up plus 23 for the game 70 inside 50s to 47 but the Tigers were the more efficient team inside 50 and it did feel like it had been noted by a couple people on social media. GWS really had to labor for their goals, and Richmond's goals came very quickly and easily. And, like, you know, this is in a lot of ways kind of what you expected out of the Giants this year a gifted offensive team that struggles to stop anybody. And it's just, you know, I'm sure it's frustrating for them that they couldn't finish this one off. They've had a couple of fun, close wins. Probably felt like this one slipped away, but I don't think we can be too disappointed in them. Richmond did consistently win on the rebound in this game and against a less experienced team that loves to play quickly. You know, we're talking about the return of the orange tsunami under Adam Kingsley. It makes sense that a team like that could get burned going back the other way when it's an outfit that is still more experienced in areas where it matters. Dion Prestia, Jaden Short important on that front. Liam Baker slid back in the second half after really being a steady forward for the first part of the game, and he had some really impactful touches. Also, more consistent performances from a couple other Richmond veterans, a couple other premiership players for them. Kevin McIntosh and Noah Balta, I've been, we, we've both been critical of them the start of the season, especially Balta with his one-on-one stuff, but he held his ground. I thought this was McIntosh's best game of the year, and just for the speed that GWS has, they just, they don't quite have a dude who can really get in on you and tackle like they needed. Quite enough of those guys, like, other than maybe uh, Daniel Lloyd. I guess maybe Lockie Ash needs to be more of that pressuring player. We've seen him as a tagger at times. He's got a hell of a lot of touches in this one. 33 of them and gained 474 meters. But maybe it's more the, the work without the ball that needs to be a focus for him. And I mean, Tom Green can do it at stoppages, but in more open play, yeah, they do need another player who can really take it to those impact players. The biggest positives I noticed for GWS by far, Callum Brown kicking a torque from, how far was it? Uh, like 60-something? Was it 57? Something like that. He's a forward. I know they've played him as a defender, but he's a forward. Let me guess the other. Kieran fucking Briggs. Yeah, I didn't even bother with Brady Bruce. Like, I just played Briggs. I love his game. Briggs kicked 2-1 from 30 hitouts, 11 disposals and 9 tackles. I did not think that he'd be able to stand up to Toby Nankervis in this game, but he very much did. I mentioned this before. I've been talking with our friend Rick Shibani, who's in our fantasy league and is involved with the LA Dragons of the USAFL, about Briggs' development and maturation at the club in the past few years. At this point, he looks really disciplined out. He is in tune with the other players. He's, his hits are smart. And yeah, I mean, with Braden Proust still injured and often quite undisciplined, he can't stay on the Opal mostly because he gets suspended. This year, it's 
not because suspension thus far, but when he gets it, he will be suspended. Briggs looks like a long-term solution. Yeah, Braden Cruz is 27 and has been around the block. Briggs is just 23. He turns 24 in October. I love it in this sport, a guy that's a few months older than me is like ancient. I mean, Proust debuted in 2017. I know that the move was made mainly for playing time, but stylistically, this team fits Toby Bedford so much better than Melbourne, where Melbourne is, you know, stop and start and slow and not a super entertaining watch, whereas Gino, you know, they get it and go, and a guy as fast as Toby Bedford fits that really, really well. I mean, you know, I thought it was a great move just because it meant he was going to play, and it turned out this is just like, this is a great match for him in terms of not just playing time, but the actual style of football. Yeah, he and his fellow Toby, the captain, played really well off each other, needing to a couple goals for in a row for the Giants that ended up bringing them back within a point near the middle of the fourth quarter. I'm still not sure which Toby should have gotten credited on one of those. I think Green got his butt on it. I believe he did. It was a very unnecessary review because it was obviously a goal. It was just a matter of whose goal. Yeah, re- that's review abuse right there. Um, also, Josh Fahey kicked his first. Josh Fahey kicked his first AFL goal on the run for fifty-one as part of just this great back and forth in the fourth quarter, which saw twelve goals. See, that's the sort of thing you know. A guy getting his first goal like that makes you think, "Oh man, they've got this." And I'm impressed that Richmond overcame that because again, this had all the signs of a Richmond collapse at least a draw. Briggs got his second goal with three and a half minutes to go. He cleaned up off a stoppage where he didn't get the tap. It was 104 to 98. Then Nankervis did win out of that center bounce, and Marlon Pickett picked up the ball cleanly. Dion Prestia tied it with 240 left. Samson Ryan had a chance to give the Tigers the lead, but his snap was short. Lockheed Whitfield marked it. That was one of those moments where we thought, oh, they had their chance. They pissed it away. But then on that winning play, in the final minute of time off, of clock time, Jack Revolt. Oh, yeah, we didn't mention that Jack Revolt kicked five in this game. I know he's had some other good games against them, even as the Tigers have struggled playing at GWS in recent years. I think for their first I mean, with their like 2014. Yeah, in that game in 2014, he kicked 11. That's his career high. He was damn good in this game. And he did have a couple of misses. I think he was, what, 5-3 from the match? Yeah, 5-3. He won out against Jack Buckley. And remember, still without Tom Lynch. Oh, other observation about this game. This felt like a Richmond home game. Great turnout by the Tiger Army. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the reaction after that, that Prestia goal was great. And then the winner, obviously, just looking back at that final play that got that goal for Pickett. It was Revolt with kind of a desperation handball in the center to avoid a turnover. Just a heads-up play. Samson Ryan, I guess you could say he redeemed himself from that kick that was short because he halved a really important contest. And then I could not believe the courage and just the boldness from Marlon Pickett on that play because he went in between Dustin Martin and Liam Baker who could win enough of the ball on their own and kick well enough to win plenty of games for the Tigers. But Pickett went between both of them and ran on to kick that winning goal. And the Tigers had their first win by six points or fewer in 13 attempts. Coincidentally, that last win by a goal or less was against the Giants in 2021 round nine at that place where Dima hated playing. You know, despite the actual crowd, I'm not sure what the actual attendance figure was. Can't have been that big. Uh, survey says 
9,723. I would guess a little more than that, but it was like it was a fun atmosphere. That and both games at Marvel that had about 40,000 this round. Over 40,000 for both. And made up for a really flat crowd at the round opener. It was one of those where like, yeah, there was no, you know, oh my God, 85,000 people. But like, that was a fun environment. Yeah, the Giants cheer squad with the drums and a lot of Richmond fans and just a good atmosphere. Richmond's probably not a finalist this year, but I'm not entirely ready to count them out as crazy as that sounds. They're ahead of Carlton. Just on percentage. They're ahead of Carlton. I I just find that so fucking funny. It's just hard to come away with a negative perception of this game, other than that GWS just doesn't have the horses defensively, especially when you're missing Sam Taylor, you're still missing Nick Haynes, Harry Hill Davis, obviously. Harry Hillberg was in there, but didn't do a ton, even though he ended up with seven marks, 18 disposals, 486 meters, barely noticed him. Um, Like, Jack Buckley actually played pretty well the week before Geelong. Struggled with revolt in this game, but like, It's not like there was any sort of shocking or upsetting revelation about the Giants that came out of this game. And remember what I said about GWS from last year, how like every game they played was boring. They've been so fun to watch. They've been in close competitive games that have come down to the final couple kicks. And that's honestly all I wanted. Tim Taranto was one of the big heroes for Richmond. A goal, 36 disposals, nine clearances, 630 meters. Shane Bolton kicked 1-2 off 23 disposals, gained 577. Dion Prestia, goal in 23 disposals. Jaden Short, also with 23, he gained 517 meters. Liam Baker in that new spot, which has really been one of the only substantial changes Andrew McWalter's made, behind 20 disposals. And again, I noted that he moved out of that forward spot and did shift back when the tires needed to elevate late, and it paid off big time. By the way, at the end of the game... Richmond was able to take advantage of stoppages, you know, because you got the 6-6-6 rollout setter bounces, but they were able to, you know, get a quick stoppage and shift numbers accordingly. Whereas, remember a few weeks ago, I forget, who was it? Was it Grimes that wasn't on the ground when they lost to... Yes, it was Dylan Grimes who was not on the ground when uh, Sandra marked against Daniel Rioli. Yeah. So clearly there's been some attention to detail with that stuff, even amidst a lot of significant changes there. Uh, my favorite individual stat from this game, Dylan Grimes had 10 intercepts and finished the game with minus 28 meters. I guess just a number of backwards kicks then after those intercepts when he's playing a bit of that center half role. Yeah, I know. It's just, it was a strange looking line. I thought it was funny. Oh, it it's brilliant. Obviously, if you're winning, despite giving up 23 more inside 50s, you're more efficient. Richmond at 66% efficiency. Like I said, their goals were easy. GWS had to labor for theirs. Giants finished 42.9% inside 50. Interesting that the Giants actually laid 20 more tackles in this game, but I guess a lot of them were like right off stoppages and stuff. And that kind of is the Tom Green way, even though he didn't have a lot of tackles. It was Kieran Briggs and Toey Bedford with nine each. I mean, like I said, Bedford can run. I'm thinking about other things that really hurt the Giants in this game, Brett Daniels going down with the hamstring. Yeah, I really liked his play the last few weeks, so that was unfortunate. That was how Faye got in uh, for the second half, was that thing went down near the end of the second quarter. This kid Faye might be pretty good. I know he hasn't, he's just been the sub for a couple times. I think he'll get elevated in the next couple weeks to a more substantial role. Love the long sleeves, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. Individual stat lines for the Giants. 
I mentioned Ash and Briggs already as important players. Tom Green didn't mention his 35 disposals, 10 score involvements, eight clearances at 592 meters. Expected him to lay some more tackles in this one. He ended up with just four, but other players lifted and laid some tackles to add to that pressure. Xavier O'Halloran and Khaled Ward with seven each as well. Lockie Whitfield at 33 disposal and gained 574 meters. Ward, aside from those tackles, kicked 1-1 from 32 and 607 meters. He had an important miss that ended up tying the game with 410 left. Finn Callahan looks really at home, and if you were playing for a Victorian club, he'd be getting talked about a lot more. He had a goal from 23 disposals. He already has a Rising Star nomination for this year, and I'm very glad he does. He's been playing a lot above his age. Stephen Canelio behind from 23 disposals and 8 tackles. Toby Bedford kicked 1-2 from 19, 12 contested possessions and 9 tackles. Snooze fits the orange tsunami to a T. And then you mentioned Daniel Lloyd as being an important player. He kicked two behinds from 18 disposals, 10 contested possessions, and 488 meters gained. I hadn't really thought all that much about Lloyd until recently, which I guess is a good thing because it means that he's elevated a bit. I also want to mention Jesse Hogan for like five seconds. He hit the post from 24 meters out in the second quarter. And at that point, the Giants were down 40 to 17. And then yet he converted for a 57 degree angle a couple minutes later. Perfectly balanced as all things should be. Like, this is a guy who, or I'm going to do, I'm going to put on my best Chris Collinsworth. Now, here's a guy who misses the easy shots, but always nails the hard ones. Why do I feel like that's something that could totally belong in a footy video game as a, as a broadcaster's quote? Oh, yeah. Or like, sorry, all I'm thinking of now are like all of the um, quotes from the old NCAA 14 game. Like when your defensive back drops an interception every time. You know, what's funny. Even telling his coach that he wanted to play receiver this week. Yep, exactly. Stuff like that. All right. Uh, you liked one goal games. Here's another. Essendon 16-9-105, defeating North 15-9-99. Both of the Sunday games actually decided by one clean kick. And I mean, I know that there is, you know, this is a more recent rivalry with Essendon and North, you know, really developing in the 21st century with some dramatic games. The 69-point comeback the late winner a few years back from now you've got brad scott on the other side of it yeah he he gave a great dig at i guess himself and and north as a whole saying hey it's familiar being in this 4 40 p.m time slot but yeah this was just a fun game where hard to come out you know north it sucks because you'd love to get a win they've now dropped what 10 straight Right. And they dropped 10 straight. And, you know, you can think about the players that they were missing in this one. No Luke Davies, Uniac, obviously. And then Jai Simpkin got concussed. After. I thought it was a shoulder thing at first, but I guess if he's all hitting us, then there's no way he's playing next week. That sucks. Yeah, that Hugh Greenwood got a head knock right before halftime. He was ruled out with concussion as well. And he had been one of the players really making up for LDU's absence along with Bailey Scott. And I thought at that point, oh, man, they're just going to get smoked second half. And I mean, you look at how the game started as well as it did leading by 20 points at quarter time. And then their accuracy let them down into second quarter, just four behinds where they had, you know, some relatively easy chances that they missed. There was a really bad miss from Jake Stringer at the end of the handball sequence that I noted. Sam Draper right after that as well. Of course, he kicked an amazing goal late in this game that, to make up for that and give the Bombers the lead with five and a half left. Yeah, but like despite North losing this game and 
once again, coming off with a good effort and nothing to show for it, not being able to, you know, sing and celebrate with Brett Rath. And I just, that they came out and competed in the second half at all with who they were missing. I respect the hell out of that. And it was the youngsters that de- that delivered for them. Throughout this game, Will Phillips, Harry Sheasel, George Fornball were all strong and clearance, and they worked through pressure really well. And for the second week in a row, I'm really complimentary of Eddie Ford with, you know, not many touches, but having a couple really smart plays. He had his handball over the top to Cam Zerhar with a little under 12 minutes left that set of Zerhar's goal to give North a narrow lead. It's little things like that. I want Eddie Ford to get more of the ball. It's at some point... They deserve a win. I hope it fucks up someone's season and that someone is not Geelong. Like, this is, it's going to be like the ultimate feel-good story. You know, people were happy for them when they beat Richmond last year, obviously. It would be rewarding for them to get one, but, like, I can't be too upset with how they've played, which is incredible considering just what they've had to deal with. A lot of players lifted for Essendon in this one. I mean, praise North for the performance they had, but, you know, in terms of the most important players for Essendon, Nick Martin with a really complete game over the whole ground. Accurate disposal, whether by hand or by foot. Accurate set shot as well when he gets the chance. I mean, we we knew that for the garbage time stuff in his debut, but we're seeing in a tight game here. Matt Guelphy has worked his way back into the side really easily. He provides great energy. And Kyle Langford with four goals, and I was thrilled with the performance he had. Essendon are so much better when he's in there, and that is not a coincidence. His third goal was the 100th of his career, and I wish that that got more attention. I still think maybe this offseason you look at converting him to a defensive role if you can't bring in some really good defenders because that's what this team is lacking. This game, they had the defenders that they needed in terms of Jordan Ridley and Jaden Laverty being really important to interceptors. Ridley was a bit more of a goalkeeper and Laverty, despite the bandaged up kind of Joel Selwood style, unafraid to go after marks in the air and had a lot of important ones. He just isn't quite the right build to really be able to take on, you know, like a Buddy Franklin body type. No, if there's one thing that Essendon needs to target in the draft of the trade period, it's that key defender. Someone built like Ben McKay, who actually had a Pretty nice game. You know, the last couple of weeks, he looked washed. He played really well. 18 disposals, 14 intercepts, 10 marks. You know, once again, lost both his games this week. But this this was good to see from him. I guess the day of rest mattered more to Barry this time. I, I guess. So Langford's fourth goal, his 101st of his career, made it 99-93 Bombers with 420 left. Jaden Stevenson then had a kick across the face. That led to nothing, but he redeemed himself coming off of a pack with a snap to tie it with 303 left. But Essendon came back immediately with great forward pressure. Kyle Langford made a great move to keep the play alive. And then Will Snelling and Andrew Phillips made a couple of moves to set up the super sub, who I still think should be playing full time. Massimo D'Ambrosio kicked the go ahead goal with 208 left. Bombers were able to kind of stall things out from there, doing a good job off of stoppages, making sure they had the numbers. Uh, Ridley drew a high tackle from Cam Zerhar with 42 seconds left, and I thought Nick Larky got pushed in the back with a couple seconds left. He would have had to hit a bomb from like 60 meters. The odds of it would be almost zero, but it would have been nice for him to have that shot. You gotta give us a shot! I loved Massimo getting that goal. We've both been big advocates of his, but he came in as a sub for Dylan Shield. 
seemed to be tactical. Maybe it was kind of managing Shield after he had been out last week. A lower impact game from Shield. At, at first, I was doubting, you know, why it wasn't Phillips that was coming off when you trust Draper to be the more versatile player. But Phillips had his share of important plays in this one. And I mean, he had the assist to set up Massimo's winner. So good on Andrew Phillips for showing his worth outside of pure ruck work. If North played well, Essendon won a game that they absolutely had to win to stay alive, you know, to be a finals contender. They've got one of the easiest schedules to take advantage of. And while they it wasn't glamorous, they handled it. Remember, they also have a second meeting with these guys and a second meeting with the Eagles. Their other double ups, you know, Collingwood, Geelong, Port Adelaide, not so friendly, but basically they gotta go four and out of these games and probably need to beat GWS away as well, because they already beat him at home. One guy who did not play well for the Bombers in this game, Brandon Zirk-Thatcher. I have his name in our notes three times. One was a crappy spoil attempt. One was him giving away a free kick because he had a good tackle on Cam Zerar at first and then slipped, so he had him below the knees. And then one for giving away a mark to Callum Coleman-Jones, who I think the, the move to North has worked out well for him from a playing time perspective. And on the other end, a defender that didn't play well for North, Jack Zebel had some costly turnovers in this one. And, you know, looking at the conversation after this game on socials, people were calling for accountability in terms of maybe dropping Zebel in favor of backing in someone like Josh Goder. Because, look, clearly Clarko, Ratton, and company, they aren't afraid of uh, holding Ben Cunnington accountable by dropping him. When Draper had that awesome goal with 538 left that temporarily gave us into the lead, that was made possible by Zebel having a kick-in out on the full. And there were a couple of bad kick-ins in this game both ways. But, like, since getting absolutely bodied in Tasmania by Port, North have had two very winnable games where you, know, you feel like it slipped away, but you played well. And the game in the middle against Collingwood where they, you know, they got beat, but they didn't get humiliated. And that was after that really, really shitty stretch, basically, in the after from, like, the second half of the Good Friday game up until the Sydney game, it was not pretty. So they're playing better. I just, they need that better play to turn into a win at some point, just from a confidence standpoint. Just from, you know, the guys need something to celebrate, but they haven't imploded. Zach Merritt started off this game super hot, had two goals from 16 disposals, six contested possessions, five clearances, and 253 meters gained in the first quarter alone. He ended up with 34 disposals, 11 marks, 10 score involvements, 8 clearances, and 578 meters. Jai Caldwell, 27 disposals, 9 marks at 540 meters. From a fantasy standpoint, another 100-plus game for him, which I didn't expect, but I'm glad I held on to him. Nick Martin kicked two straight from 21. I saw his prices earlier. Jordan Ridley had a behind from 21 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 9 marks. Archie Perkins, another member of my fantasy team. Two goals from 18 disposals, eight marks. And Kyle Lankford, four goals straight from 14 and 12 score involvements at eight marks. His versatility has really helped Essendon. You know, with Peter Wright out, he's had that more important spot as that supplementary forward option. Wright nearly got back in for this game, so expect him in next week for the Kings birthday eve game. That's kind of an inaugural thing. It's Sunday nighter before the Kings birthday match. Essendon playing Carlton that. By the way, balance will be on between the North GWS game and that Essendon-Carlton game. Good to note. Essendon were plus 13 in hitouts and plus 31 in marks. Checks out with the vision. 
it's tough to be able to body up against Todd Goldstein and whoever supporting him in this case, it was CCJ and Essendon backed in Phillips to play alongside Draper and help him out there. And Phillips had his impact over the rest of the ground too. One more thing about bounce that I just want to mention. They've been getting like more and more edgy every week and I love it. By the way, Chief doing big freeze is going to be a laugh and a half. I hope we get to see some of that. I think seven shows a lot of it. By the way, seven has five of the eight games this coming round. Because you got Thursday night, Friday night, Richmond Frio, King's Birthday Eve. King's Birthday. And King's Birthday itself. Yeah. Uh, Stats for North to mention as we kind of wind down here. Aaron Hall, I noticed him a lot more. He wasn't just, you know, taken out of the goal square. He was inserting himself in contests. 27 was. Those goals, 589 meters. I think he seems to be responding well to the changes that have been made there. Will Phillips, a goal off 27 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 8 clearances. Darcy Tucker, a couple of clangers, but still managed a goal off 24 disposals and 7 marks. He gained 477 meters. Luke McDonald, a goal in 18 disposals. Jack Zebel, 18 disposals and 500 meters gained. Nick Larkey kicking 2-3. He had a couple of misses on shots he normally hits. Between that and a Harry Sheasel miss with 520 left, you know, you can circle the kicks you needed to make up those six points, even if you give away some of the goals you gave away. And Taron Thomas, a goal in his return, he also had 17 disposals in game 500 meters. I hope that football gives him, you know, the motivation to keep cleaning up the off-field stuff because he's very talented and... I wish him the best. It was cool to see him get back in there, and I noticed him all over the ground. He adds a spark there. All right, Mark of the Week. Last week's winner deservedly was Jesse Hogan. He took it over Sam DeConing with Zach Guthrie pretty close by as well to kind of finish the game off. Your nominees this week are Jacob Kaczynski over Aaliyah Aaliyah, Josh Weddle between Jacob Kaczynski and Connor Rosie, and Jamari Hagen over Zach Guthrie. I'm going to go with Jacob Kaczynski. You know, he got the, he kind of got on O'Lear's shoulder, just kind of had the knee on the shoulder. So that's that's my winner this week. I really appreciate the courage from Eugle Hagen to go up against Zuthree in the opposite direction. I like Kaczynski's as well, but I don't know. Jamar seems like a more unique mark to me. I go, I go Kaczynski one, Eugle Hagen two, Weddle three. By the way, Eugle Hagen. Yeah, he's not the biggest dude, but man, he lays some big fucking tackle. Wait, he's 6'6". What the fuck? He just doesn't... Does he not look 6'6 to you? No. Eugle Hagen lays some big fucking tackles. Also, he's 6'6". I had no idea. He plays like he's a lot smaller than that. Maybe it's also, you know, seeing him stand up, you know, alongside so many other Bulldogs talls that, that, you know, just like, okay, he's kind of in the mix there. I don't think any of the Mark or Gold nominees will be able to stand up on Brownlow night. I mean, it's hard enough to crack the goal of the week mix with what we had between round six and eight with I Charlie think- Cameron, Will Ashcroft, and Brody Majek. Maybe Paul Curtis cracked the mix. I think that Kaczynski mark, at the very least, you know, if you have like the highlight reel of best marks of 2023 gets in there. Fair enough on that. Your round 11 winner for goal of the week was Joshua Shelley. He received a handball from Isaac Rankin on the boundary and kicked a roller at a 64-degree angle from 34 meters out on the outside of the boot. It was really tough to decide between him and Kazi Pickett for the end-over-end end kick that he had against the Dockers. Rochelle's was more impactful in the scope of the game. Kazi's was more like the moment you saw it, the whoa factor. Oh yeah, Kazi got nominated again. 
He got a handball on the boundary from Charlie Spargo and sidestepped Lewis Young before snapping from a very nice 69-degree angle, 27 meters out. Your other two nominees came from Saturday. Nick Dacos got a two-bounce run in through the middle of the ground. It had a 1-2 with Jordan Goey before kicking for 52. That's probably going to win because it's Collingwood and it's Nick Dacos. And then Saturday night, Luke Pedler got a smother of Matt Rowell in Adelaide's 450 before rolling a kick through from 31 meters out through an unguarded goal square. Ethan, you just watched these again. Who you got? God, this is tough. Uh, Pickett was in a tight window to do it, and it was a great angle, but Pedler had the funky geometry. And he may like play half it with the smother, too. God, that's tough. I could go with either of those, really. Make a choice. Uh, let's go Kazi again. I think I'm going Kazi again as well, even though I respect the hell out of what Luke Pedler was able to do. The the turn that kind of like an obtuse angle at the end was, was pretty nuts. I mean, that was like a, what, 130 degree angle it turned out or something. I don't know. It was, it was cool. I think there was more skill to Pickett's actual kick. Also, shouts out to Kazi for responding through the DMs to one of his biggest fans. Mason Cox. Yes, he congratulated Mason on 100 games. And again, happy belated birthday, Kazi. Main character for round 11, we picked the Carlton Fords. It was hard to come up with one for this round. I mean, there was that sad Carlton fan with the sat face sign that was pretty funny. But I am going with the AFL Central No Bounce team for this round. So the Instagram page, AFL Central, which has 184,000 followers, had put a best 23 of players with zero career bounces together. No first-year players considered in that. Like, it's not just Max gone. You do have a whole lot. There are six Ruckman in this team, by the way. Actually, Pete Laddams is one of them. I mean, if you count Darcy Cameron, that's there's seven. Yeah, like... Like this is yeah, I count him because uh he's in there. Oh no, there's uh, Mark Sorry. Mark Pigeonette's in there, Pete Laddams. Okay, there's ten. Plus a couple other guys like Sam DeCone we could fill in there on occasion. <laughs> but out of these twenty-three, three of them had their first career bounces this week. And I love like the followers all like the DMs for this page getting blown up. Um Jack Buckley had two bounces, Tom Sparrow had his first, Cody Waitman had his first career bounce and even responded to the page's DM after. So that's my pick for this round is three guys graduating from the no bounce team. I love how captivated the followers are by this. I mean, if you take a look at the, if you take a look at the uh, post when Jack Buckley had his, you'll just see like the, the, the amount of, DMs this guy got as soon as the bounce happened. But when Max Gone has his first bounce before his final goal in his final game, it's going to crash Twitter. It may. All right. That's just about going to do it. We've got a couple more episodes coming at you before round 13, in which we do our progress reports on both Geelong and Gold Coast. But also, we're going to be doing our Sir Doug Nichols round jumper rankings. We did have a couple of those. Worn again this week. Uh, Hawthorne and Port Adelaide both wore theirs, and those happen to be two of the best, so I'm not complaining about that at all. Spoiler alert, Hawthorne's probably the best. And then we'll obviously have our round 13 preview as well. The eight-game slate spread out over five rounds. For the first time this year, we will have no overlaps. We don't have another overlap until, what, round 16? 
yeah, we don't have it again for the buy round. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, it helps that these next couple rounds, you know, this one is eight games, but spread out over five days. And that is six of the next. We've got a couple of six gamers, but it's time for no overlaps. It's time for footy. It's time for everybody to watch all the footy, including us. We are Americans watching the footy. You can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. You can, you find, can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find me at Castle Media, and you can find Grian Harambe on Instagram at Cat Named Grian. I posted some never-before-seen content of him today, actually. What's he doing right and, now? Uh, he's just curled up on your bed, and I find it very unfortunate that I'm going to have to open the door and probably force him out, because once he wakes up and... Because if he wakes up and nobody's in there, he's probably going to go haywire and rip all your posters off the wall. Considering if he's sleeping, if he doesn't wake up, I'd be okay with giving him a chance. We'll see what happens. Anyway, uh, yeah. All right. And with that, yeah, we'll be recording again tomorrow night. All right.